We're looking at Mark 12 to close out the year. And since this Sunday contains both child dedication and communion, I need to cut this sermon a little shorter, planned for that ahead of time. So looking at the text, we've got the Sadducees this week, the ruling party opposite the Pharisees in the Jewish hierarchy. From the Sadducees came the high priests, and the word from which they took their name is the word for righteous. It's the word sadiq. It's not because the Sadducees were melancholy. And their theological distinctive was they preferenced Moses over the prophets. These guys, the Sadducees, weren't as large as the Pharisees. Pharisees kind of had the hearts of the people in a lot of ways. The the Sadducees being the, the, uh, the upper echelon of the Jewish hierarchy with the high priests and such, they majored on the first five books of the Old Testament, minored the rest. And if I was teaching my apologetics class uh, over at MCUTS here, I'd note for you how Jesus' approach with them is to take something of theirs, the theme verse of their party, in fact, is what Jesus quotes in verse 26, the passage about the burning bush. That was the Sadducean theme party verse. And he shows them something from Moses, they accepted Moses, to show them they neither knew Moses as well as they thought they did, nor the power of God as Moses knew it. What I'm saying is that Jesus didn't quote to them the prophets on resurrection because the Sadducees neglected, if not rejected the prophets, it wouldn't have gone over. So he says to them in verse 26, y'all remember the burning bush, that text you've built your identity on, how God identified himself to Moses in present active tense as the God ongoing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long gone by that point, why don't you believe bushes still burn? Moses knew that God can do anything. How come you don't think so? Why this ridiculous story about seven husbands for one bride? These Sadducees, again, there weren't a lot of them, but they were powerful and they were rich and they were smart. And they took Moses very seriously. And so they used the law's requirement. It's found in Deuteronomy 25, what they're appealing to there in verse 19. They used this requirement that the next brother take responsibility to continue his dead brother's name through children with his widow, they use that to say, when this woman dies, if there's such a thing as resurrection, she's going to have seven men claiming her. Now, Jesus, obviously you see how stupid this is. Resurrection wasn't in the first five books of Moses, so they thought. The idea is in prophets like Daniel, whom the Sadducees considered Johnny's come lately. Only the first five books really mattered. When I think of the Sadducees, I I, uh, think of a scene from the Narnia stories. This one comes from the book, The Silver Chair. There's a queen of an underground kingdom, and she confines some Narnians in her underground world and tries to convince them that the underground world is all that there is. That's reality. There is no sky or sun above ground. That's wishful thinking. But there's a character among the Narnians named Puddleglum. He originates from the marshes, and he's pretty sure he's seen things above ground. 
He's felt them, the sunshine on his face. He's seen the stars at night. He's tasted what's come from the ground. And, and finally, Puddleglum confronts the queen saying, suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things above, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Supposing we have, then all I can say is the made up things seem a good deal more important than what you have here. If there was a life to come beyond the grave, to the Sadducee way of thinking, the same rules would have to apply because the only rules that were were the Mosaic rules, the Mosaic law. It's a misnomer. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, the Pharisees were kind of the conservatives and the Sadducees were the liberals. Not at all. Uh, the Sadducees were, that's reading our own partisan culture back uh, onto uh, Israel's. The, the Sadducees were uber conservative. I mean, these are the internet trolls, okay? Uh, they're, they're, they're really conservative. And if there was a life to come beyond the grave to the Sadducee way of thinking, the same rules would have to apply to it, the Mosaic law. But you see, those rules in Moses, they depended on the reality of death and dying. Death is the very thing resurrection cancels. So if the resurrection is true, the law that they invoke here would no longer apply if resurrection is true. If God can set a bush on fire, this was the Sadducee thing that they look back to, the burning bush. God appears to Moses and says, here's your task. And the Sadducee said, we're in that line of succession. And Jesus says to them, verse 26, you remember the passage about the bush? If God can set a bush on fire and yet the bush not be consumed by the flames, which the Sadducees believed happened, took as historical fact, how come they couldn't believe God could raise the dead? And the very passage from Moses they're using from Deuteronomy 25 to try to trip Jesus up contained a seed of resurrection in it. That's why Jesus emphasizes more than once how wrong they were. He says in verse 24, is this not the reason you're wrong? And then the end of verse 27, you are quite wrong. The old rules don't apply to resurrected bodies. The law addressed what to do in causes of death of spouse. And by the way, because we're curious... Jesus doesn't say there, there is uh, no more marriage in heaven as if spouses forget one another. He says there won't be new marriage in resurrected bodies. Resurrection is the point here, not marriage. Rising from the dead to live in the presence of God is not a disembodied experience. It's, it, it, you remain physical. But the purpose marriage serves here and now it's no longer needed there. And I, and I can't explain this in full because obviously I haven't experienced it yet, only the promise of it. But in Christ, when we rise from death to be with him, remaining ourselves yet perfected, this is the teaching of the New Testament, in that state, in resurrected bodies, we no longer have the same needs we have here. That's what Jesus meant by saying we'll be like the angels. We don't become angels. We're still human, physical people, but not physically needy in resurrected bodies. Now, in fact, I, I realize that may unsettle some of us. 
Am I wrong for not looking forward to that right now because I'm enjoying my spouse and my kids? No, not wrong. Live in the present as contentedly as you can, but recognize this is the underground kingdom. This is the far country, the world in the throes of sin. There is an above ground reality. And Jesus promises us things above where sin no longer is the rot in everything, where it no longer affects us as deeply as it does now. To develop a longing for resurrection, whistle. As I get older, I whistle more. I hope I'm not a whistling old guy someday. Every S is a whistle. To develop a longing for resurrection with no whistle doesn't mean you want to escape the here and now. It does mean you want to be done with the contamination of sin. It will be, in the words of the Narnian, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Jesus himself all unfiltered. That's what's glorious about it. There's a French novelist who wrote, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Isn't that good? The approach of the Sadducees to the things of God was to drum up people to collect wood from bushes they no longer believed could burn. Bound to law, they miss the grace of God in power, which is what resurrection is. Now let me zoom us in on one particular hazard of the Sadducees and we'll move into communion. Because what's key in this passage is verse 24. When Jesus says to them, is this not the reason you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? And he connects these two. It's not enough just to know the scriptures. You must also know the power of God. The power of God to redemption. And the, and the hope of redemption is resurrection. To see the Lord as he is and, and to have our own bodies perfected. So verse 24 is key because it's still possible for you and me. It's still possible that the particular hazard of the Sadducees becomes ours. Just as Mark, last week we looked at the Pharisees and the Herodians, and Mark holds them up to us. So now in this passage, the Sadducees are held up to us, and they are further warnings to heed. Not because they were such terrible people. That's not what it's about. It's, it's in particularly how they went wrong. It was good that they affirmed Moses and that they had their noses in the law, just as it was good that the Pharisees uh, were the rescuers of Israel, and, and there's not much you can say good about the Herodians, but nevertheless. And so the Sadducees are held up to us, like the Pharisees and the Herodians before them, and the particular hazard that we see in the Sadducees is this. It is possible to know the Bible well and miss the larger point of it. One key takeaway today, not two, not three. It's a holiday weekend, so I'm just going to go with one. I've got to get down to the ducks in Tunica today. Not the casinos, the ducks outside the casinos waiting to be shot. So one thing, 
It's possible to know the Bible well and miss the larger point of it. I read a short little book this year. If you're not a a big book reader, but uh, you can get through a short book, this might be a nice stocking stuffer for, for you. It's called Long Story Short, The Bible in 12 Phrases. And it's by a guy named Glenn Scrivener, who's an Australian pastoring in Britain. I love reading the Australians and the Brits. Uh, They have some great tools. Long story short, Glenn Scrivener. And he says this, the Bible's long story is actually a biography. It's not about ideas, it's about a person. And as we meet him, that person, everything else starts to make sense. Jesus is both the heart of the Bible and the secret to its power. Jesus is both the heart of the Bible and connect the two, the secret to its power. Verse 24 again, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. But they did know the scriptures, didn't they? Yeah, they did know the scriptures. They knew Moses cold. So what Jesus is getting at is not that they were ignorant, but that they were obstinate. It was in the way they read scripture. They had these particular set of blinders. Only Moses, and Moses all the time, and nothing besides. I don't like to cross-reference a lot in sermons, but you might remember that place in the Gospel of John. John uh, sort of always lumps the Pharisees and the Sadducees together and just speaks of, when he says the Jews, he means the Jewish religious establishment. Place in John chapter 5, I'll just read it to you, where Jesus says, Two Pharisees and Sadducees together, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's the same parallel track to what we have here in March 12, uh, Mark 12. Jesus is both the heart of the Bible and the secret to its power. Because the Bible is a, is a transformational book. It, it, it adjusts us. The power is in Jesus' life. How he, not just that he did miracles, which is incredible, but that he lived his life in flawless obedience to all the oughts and ought nots that you get in the law of Moses. And his life resurrected, how he walked out of the garden tomb and lives right now on our behalf. As we meet Jesus in the Bible, everything else in the Bible starts to make sense, including how obedience to God is supposed to work. Because obedience is a huge issue biblically. In fact, the Sadducees, looking at Mark 12 here, they're actually raising an issue of obedience. You realize that? Teacher, verse 19, Moses wrote for us, and then he gives them, uh, he gives, Je- the, the Sadducee gives Jesus then the, the law in Deuteronomy 25. This is what's supposed to happen in the case of a widow who is childless and, her, and her, her husband has died, left her childless. The brother, the brother-in-law is supposed to father children on the dead brother's behalf. They quote this, this law to him here. The law stipulated the brother of a childless widow was to do this. But in the Sadducees' hands, it becomes obedience for its own sake. 
It is possible to know the Bible well, but miss the larger point of it. What was the larger point of the brother-in-law taking his brother's widow to provide children for the deceased brother? Resurrection! A seed of it is in this law where a brother, though dead, gets living children in his name. Don't get caught up in the foreignness to us of this. I mean, some of you are thinking right now, I can't imagine wanting my brother-in-law. Fine. Hey, just leave it. All right? Don't go there anymore. Banish the thought. But get the point. The practice was about something larger than itself. Something greater than itself. It was resurrection of a kind, foreshadowing in the practice of this resurrection in full. The dead, even the dead can go on living if God makes provision for them. Even the dead can go on living if God makes provision for them. And in the law of Moses, this was the provision for the dead. A living brother keeping his dead brother's memory going that spoke to something greater than itself. In the ministry of Jesus, what is the provision? The grace of God in power, keeping all who believe in Jesus, keeping us through death and beyond death. Don't think of resurrection as as a consolation for, for having to live in a fallen world. Think of resurrection as a restoration of the life you always wanted and knew somewhere, somehow had to be possible, and that's a life free of death. Aren't you tired yet of death and dying? But it's all we have if we stay in our rebellion. A life free of death is the life we want as human beings. And here it was encoded in the law in what is to us this weird practice of a living brother providing children for the dead brother through his widow, that's about resurrection of a kind. It's a clue, it's a hint, it's an anticipation, it's a seed. It speaks to something greater than itself. And you follow the breadcrumbs to Jesus himself. It is possible to know the Bible well, but miss the larger point of it. What's the larger point of the Bible? You can stay in your rebellion, which is death, or you can come home. But you don't go home unless the grace of God comes for us first, and the grace of God has come for us first in power, in the person of Jesus, the Word of God, taking flesh and living flawlessly obedient to God so that He alone would be qualified to take the judgment of God Off we who do not obey flawlessly so that we can have life in his name. Life that is the restoration of the life we know we want, which is life without death. But that always eludes us on our own because of the contamination of sin and the imposition of dying. That's the long story short. The Sadducees want to have a discussion about ideas. Bible's not about ideas. Debating what we'll be like in heaven and such as that. Fine as far as it goes, but the Bible is about how everything of God finds its most powerful and perfect expression in Jesus himself.
He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's the only God with wounds, mortal wounds. But when we take these elements of communion moments from now, we proclaim his death until he comes, which means he lives. This is our confession. This is our hope. It's not a hope so, but putting everything on the promise of God who has made it possible for us to experience our own resurrection in and through his, in and through his only. That's what makes communion good, though the elements themselves are not so tasty. But the elements speak to something greater than themselves. It's a, it's a little gluten-free wafer, and it's a little swig of juice in our particular uh, setup. But it's always spoke to something greater than itself. That God himself would step out of heaven in the person of his son, live the life we should have lived, die the death we should have died, so that we can have life? We put a question mark at the end of that. He puts an exclamation point. Communion is, a, is an intimate time with our Savior because we're, we're ingesting, we're doing something physical in our embodiment. And it's, it's not some uh, reenactment of, of what happened on the cross. We don't believe it that way, but what it is is it's a, it's a moment of, of Jesus' spiritual presence with his church. And in taking the elements, we are made to think of the cost, the body and the blood, so that we can have the forgiveness of sins. That's the point. That's what it's about. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the teaching of Jesus. Thank you for his grace and kindness to Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees and Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees like us. The breadcrumbs were left. In fact, uh, those guys back in that time had more opportunities than many who've ever lived. Lord, uh, free us from our blinders. Help us to see clearly what you want us to see because you're good and gracious. Help us to not get caught up, so caught up, so entangled in all the debates that swirl around us. And we miss the bigger picture. Lord, you've uh, called us to yourself in your son. And then you show us the way to live. It's not like the Bible is a guidebook or a map, but it's instructive for us. It tells us how we're supposed to respond to you and to each other, how we're to live and move and have our being. But even the carrying out of that depends on your goodness to us, your spirit filling us to utilize the resources that you've given to us. Father, in these moments of taking communion, we're told that we proclaim your death until you come. The death you really died, Lord. 
and the return that is as real as well just hasn't happened yet. But we take these elements as people who are grateful and as people who are anticipating and even as people who are longing for the fulfillment of what has been promised to us. That we can with full on, all in-ness, see Jesus and finally be with him. In the meantime, Lord, as we live our days here, we do look to your word. We look to it as those who want to have the big picture and have the greater point. Even when we're focused on a a small section of it, it all points to you. But as we live and work and relate, Lord, show us around every corner how we're supposed to respond. And when we're not responding right, make us dissatisfied with that. Show us again and again that your kindness is what leads us to repentance. And your goodness to us. You're not a God who is aloof and distant and can't be known. You're a God who came near. This season that we're in here in December is the most poignant time to speak of your imminence, your nearness. And yet you were still God in the person of your Son. Thank you for this time, these elements, how they speak to the body given for us, the blood poured out for us, that we can know forgiveness. And in knowing forgiveness, know that we belong to you and that we get to see you when you return. In Jesus' name.